0: A story from the Bible, and we're going to start with this guy on the screen, is King Xerxes, king of, at the time, what was known as the Medes and the Persians. The Persians are the ancient ancestors of what is today called Iran, and the people of Iran and Western India and Afghanistan and part of Iraq is who the Persians were. He was a great king. He ruled over a very large empire. He ruled everything from Greece to India and from Ethiopia to Kazakhstan, if you know your world map. He was very powerful. If you want to know where he fits in in Bible history, if you know your Bible characters, uh, there was Nebuchadnezzar, and then there was his grandson Belshazzar, who's the king that saw the handwriting on the wall. And the night that happened, Belshazzar was executed. He was replaced by Cyrus, the king of the Persians. Then Cyrus was replaced by Darius, and then Xerxes followed Darius. Darius is the king that put Daniel in the lion's den on accident. It happened on purpose, but he got tricked into making the law. Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes were great guys. The Bible never says anything negative about them at all, even though they weren't Jewish and they weren't following the God of Israel. Although they did, Xerxes was a great guy. He's Esther's husband. He's also the king that sends Ezra back with letters and money to rebuild Jerusalem. And if you know your history, he's the king of the Persians who invaded Greece and fought at the Battle of Thermopylae, Leonidas and the 300. Uh, Although Hollywood is completely inaccurate in who Xerxes was, Uh, Xerxes was a great guy. He's not the villain. So Xerxes is the king of the Medes and the Persians. His title was Shah on Shah, which means the king of kings. Uh, If if you're old enough, you remember the title Shah of Iran. They still used it even until 1980. Uh, They used that term because that was who Xerxes was. If you know the word Shah, you're really old, sorry. But um, if you know who the Shah of Iran was. (laughs) In the story, in the Bible, we find Xerxes... And he is the king of the Medes and the Persians, and his wife and queen is named Vashti. He is holding a banquet feast in honor of the anniversary of his reign. And there is a three-month-long party where everybody is feasting and drinking, and the food and wine are free. And it's a a big national uh, party in the capital city of Susa. At one particular evening... The men are in one courtyard, uh, feasting and drinking, and the women are with Vashti in another courtyard, having their feast. And the spirits of the men are high, and Xerxes remembers how beautiful his queen is, and he wants to show her off to all the other men, so he sends word to his queen, come, I want to show off how beautiful you are. And she says, no, we have no idea why she refuses, we're not told. If she was in a bad mood or had a headache or was uh, angry at him for something he'd said that morning or uh, just maybe she was too drunk or who knows why she didn't come, but she said no. And the men's party comes to a screeching halt. What are we going to do about that? His advisors and King Xerxes all of a sudden are sober and uh, they have a very serious problem on their hands. What do we do with Vashti who has defied the king? And they decide she can no longer be queen. so Xerxes does not divorce her, but he puts her away and he demotes her, takes the crown away. She is no longer queen. And a search is put out through the whole empire to find a new queen. I don't know how they do that. I don't know if girls went and knocked on the palace door and said, can I have an application? Or if some rider went through the kingdom looking at all the women and say, okay, we'll take you and you and you and we'll we'll see who the king likes. I, I really don't know. How you search for a new queen, I I don't know, but this is a king with hundreds of wives and concubines uh, in his harem, but um, he wants a new queen. And so in the city of Susa, the Jews have been taken hostage, for lack of a better word, by Nebuchadnezzar about 150 to 200 years before this. And there are Jews spread out all over what was the Babylonian empire and is now the Persian empire. And there are some Jewish people living in Susa and there is a Jewish girl named Hadassah who is probably in her late teens or early 20s. And uh, Hadassah is her Hebrew name and she's an orphan. Her parents are both dead. And she lives with her first cousin named Mordecai. The Bible says specifically that her dad was Mordecai's uncle, but Mordecai is the age of her father. So this, he's raising her as his own daughter is what the Bible says. So uh, they are first cousins, but she, he is her father figure. There's Hadassah and Mordecai. And Mordecai tells Hadassah, maybe you better go pick up an application for a queen. That'd be a great job. And it says she was exceedingly beautiful. And I don't, again, I, I don't know how it works, but she... I don't know, got knocked on the door and got let in the palace when the guard saw how beautiful she was or something. But there is a group of girls that gets picked and and she is in it. She's reassigned a Persian name, which is Esther. And she goes through a year-long beauty treatment, training in royal protocol and the good manners of how to behave in court and how to treat the king. and, And what is, you know, how to dress and how to speak and when to bow and not bow and when to, you know, all the stuff that would go along with being in the king's harem. All of the girls are going to be in the harem, but one of them is gonna get picked for a queen. Now, that is so different than our world that it it raises a lot of eyebrows and people are quick to condemn the ancient ways. But when a king had wives and concubines, being in the king's harem would have been something a girl wanted. It would have been an honor. They were not sex slaves to be in the king's court, to be picked um, because the king liked you or you were particularly beautiful or whatever. And they would be prepared for a year with beauty treatments. The Bible specifically mentions oils and myrrh and, and then she would have been trained in royal protocol and all the court rules and manners and such. And then they got sent in one at a time, obviously, overnight with the king and After they had spent the night with him, then they went to the other side of the palace where the wives and concubines were, and they were now one of his wives, and he was going to pick one to be queen. It's so totally, completely different than anything that we would have in this modern world, but a king was expected to show his riches and glory by having a lot of wives, and to be a concubine was something in legal status. It was something slightly less than a wife. But the king was legally responsible to financially provide for the concubines. They weren't just used sexually and then put away. Concubines' children were legitimate children of the king, but they didn't inherit titles. Whereas wives' children did inherit titles, nobility when it comes time for each individual girl to go in to be with the king for their night, they were to take a gift because you don't come into the presence of a king without a gift. And so each girl would make something or come up with something to give as a gift. And in this training, the Bible says that Esther had made a particularly close relationship with one of the eunuchs. There was a group of men, castrated men called eunuchs who were in charge of the harem girls. They were castrated so they could never use them for themselves. They were to be completely trusted, to be with the women on the king's behalf, to serve the women. Esther won the favor of this one particular eunuch who was in charge, and he gave her the best living quarters. He gave her seven servants of her own. He gave her all the best beauty treatments. And when it came time for her to think of a gift to come and bring the king, all the other girls made their own gift and picked their own thing to try to impress the king. She had the wisdom and maturity to go and ask the eunuch who actually knew the king. She's never met him yet. What would he like? And the eunuch was very pleased that she had the maturity and wisdom to think of what would the king like rather than what would I like to give. It was what would he like to receive. The Bible doesn't tell us what it was that she took as a gift, but she took a gift and she had her night with the king and he was smitten. He says, the Bible says he loved her more than any other woman. You know, she's pretty special when he's got hundreds of wives and he picks her. The next day he proclaims, I have found the queen. This is the woman I want sitting on the throne beside me. She's going to wear the crown. So Esther goes from being an orphan in a commoner situation to being the queen of the largest empire in world history at that time. That's quite a promotion. That's God. Yeah. There was a great feast. The king gave gifts, introduced to everybody, proclaims her the queen of the realm. She keeps it a secret that she's a Jewess. Nobody knows she's Jew. This is a super cosmopolitan worldwide empire that would have had every language in the world, every people in the world, all the skin colors in the world, at least in the Eastern Hemisphere, Asia, Europe, Africa. They would have known and included everybody. So everybody was what they were and it wasn't a thing. But she kept it a secret probably because the Jews were a minority and, a, and probably would not have been picked queen if she had made that known. Mordecai tells her to keep it a secret. So she becomes queen, and Mordecai said, visited the palace gate every day to see if he could hear news from what was going on inside. He's not allowed in, but she's not allowed out. And so messengers uh, uh, send word back and forth between them. And as Mordecai is visiting the palace gate every day, to check on his, it's his cousin, but it's really his daughter that he's raised. He finds out in his dealings with the people at the palace gate that two of the bodyguards that are there at the gate are plotting an assassination to kill King Xerxes. Nobody knows uh, necessarily that he's in cahoots with the queen, but he gets word to the queen through the servants that there is an assassination attempt and they are going to kill the king on this and such day and in this manner. And she goes and gets word to the king, hey, there's a couple of your bodyguards there uh, that are soldiers at the gate who are planning to kill you. And they are arrested and put on trial and it's found to be true and they are executed. Mordecai saves the life of King Xerxes. Life goes on. We don't know, this story happens over the matter of uh, maybe a few years. There's another character in the story, his name is Haman. And Haman is the second highest Man in the land, the king, and then Haman. Haman is the highest prince or noble in the land. Haman is a grotesquely arrogant guy who loves himself and himself alone. He loves to walk through the street or ride through the street and have everybody bow in front of him. Uh, Haman is all about his money and his power and gloating in his position and feeling good when everybody has to bow down to him. As Haman rides through the streets on his royal horse doing whatever it is that he does, Everybody in the street has to stop and get out of the way of his horse and bow down, except one guy won't bow down, and that's Mordecai. The Bible never says why Mordecai won't bow down to Haman, but he won't. He just stands there and looks him in the eye and watches him ride by. Haman, like we can see in all the lives of the rich and famous, people who have everything become obsessed with the one thing they don't have. And they can have all the riches and money and power in the world, and all of a sudden, There's this one thing I don't have and I need it. Whether that's another woman or more money or another whatever. And Haman becomes obsessed with this hundreds of thousands of people bowing down to him. And he becomes obsessed with the one guy that won't. And he's full of rage and hatred. And he decides, I want to kill Mordecai, but I don't just want to kill him. I want to kill all Jews. He doesn't know that the queen is a Jew. I'm going to kill all the Jews. So he goes to the king and tricks him into issuing an edict that he's going to kill all the Jews. Haman comes to him and he says, there's a people in the land that's this small group. It won't matter if we just kill them all, but we need to execute them all and just eliminate them from the kingdom because they're troublemakers and they're causing rebellion and you won't miss them at all anyway. And so the king is mistakenly led by Haman to issue the edict to kill all the Jews. Haman never tells the king that it's the Jews that he wants to kill. But all through history, all through the Bible, and even on still through World War II and today, the Jews are always facing not just attack, but total annihilation. It's just always the case because there's something very powerful on that nation. Haman says to the king, If you'll do this, I will pay large sums of money into the royal treasury. The more things change, the more they stay the same. People are constantly going to government people, and if you'll do what we want, we'll give money, not to you, it's not a bribe, we'll just pay it into your campaign. Uh Uh-huh. So Haman doesn't actually bribe the king, he just says, I'll pay large sums of money into the national treasury. So, because of money and trickery, Haman gets King Xerxes to unknowingly uh, put his signet ring on the edict to kill all the Jews. So the way that was done was letters were written up, proclamation was written up in every language in the kingdom and horse riders were sent from India to Greece, from Ethiopia to Kazakhstan. Uh, And every language saying that on a particular day, and it was about nine months ahead of time, In nine months, there will be a particular day on this month where if you would like, you are welcome to arm yourself, rise up against your Jewish neighbors and slaughter them, plunder their house and take all their riches. If they didn't have royal permission to do that, that would have been considered murder. But since the king issued the permission to do it, it was just a day to murder and plunder your neighbors. If they're Jewish, you with me? The edict goes out and all the Jews in all the land hear about it. Mordecai rips his clothes off, puts on sackcloth, dumps ashes on his head, and it says he spends all night in the city square wailing, screaming, crying, making a huge scene. It says, and the whole city was perplexed. What is going on? And word comes to Esther. Your cousin Mordecai is out in the city in sackcloth and ashes, and he's wailing. And so she sends a messenger back saying, what is going on? And he's and he sends the word that your husband, the king, has issued an edict for all Jews are going to be executed on such and such day. And we come to Esther chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Mordecai tell, sends word to Esther, You need to go to the king and ask him, What is happening? Why are you doing this? And this is her reply. All the king's officials. And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he is put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time... Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Nestor sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink these three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. At first, her reply is, I can't do that. I'm not allowed into his throne room unless I'm called. If I do that, I'll be killed unless he lowers the scepter to give permission for me to approach the throne. And he says, if you don't do this, God will save us, but you will be judged and you will die. And she realizes I'm going to die anyway. If this edict comes to pass, I might as well be bold, go. If I die, I die. I have to do my part. Mordecai says, who knows? Maybe God has put you in this position just because of this. So she fasts, all the Jews fast. She and her maids fast, and no food or water for three days. That's, that's uh, crazy fasting, no water uh, for three days. But they do. They fast to beg God's permission and or blessing. And, and she goes in to approach the king on his throne even though it is automatic death penalty uh, if he doesn't like it. We come to Esther 5, 1 to 4. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her, and he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. So she takes her life into her own hands and she has good reason to be afraid. King Xerxes, not in the Bible, but in other historical records, we know he had a really bad temper. But she takes her life into her own hands and she comes and stands in the doorway of the throne room. And he's sitting there on his throne facing her, and he sees her, and there's the moment of truth. Is he going to order her executed for invading his holiness, or is he going to lower the scepter and welcome her? And he not only lowers the scepter and welcomes her with a smile, but he says, ask me whatever you want. He knows this must be pretty serious because she's just risked her life. He knows there's something very serious on her mind and in her heart. This guy really loves her. He's not, she's not just a trophy wife. It's true love. There is another version of this story. That's all the Bible tells us about how Esther came and stood in the doorway. He lowers the scepter. She comes and asks for him to come to a dinner. There's another version of the story because there's another book. It's called The Septuagint. Maybe some of you have heard of it, maybe you haven't. Let me give you a little history lesson. This is happening about 450 years before Jesus this is at the very very end of the old testament there was 400 years called the intertestamental period where we don't have any scripture we don't have any prophecy there's nothing about it in the bible in that time period the persians xerxes was followed by sons and grandsons artaxerxes the 1st and the 2nd and so on but eventually alexander the great came out of greece and he conquered the persians and took over their whole empire heard of alexander the great all right, then he died without any legitimate children, so it was divided by generals, and eventually the Romans took advantage of that, and the Romans conquered everything in northern Africa and around the Mediterranean and the Middle East, and that's what the world that Jesus was born into 400 years later. Yes? Okay, the Septuagint is a Greek version of the Bible, of the Old Testament, translated from Hebrew into Greek during that 400-year period. The reason was because even the Jews themselves, as they got spread out into the Persian Empire and eventually the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, they began to stop speaking Hebrew. And even the rabbis who were supposed to come to the synagogue and teach out of the scrolls from the Old Testament, they could read it, but it would be like you reading Shakespeare. King James Bible is 403 years old this year. A lot has happened to our language in 400 years, right? Right? You could read the King James Bible, but you would mostly need a dictionary to explain to you what you're reading. Shakespeare is 400 and some years old. I know that you've read some Shakespeare, but you didn't understand it without somebody translating it for you. It's English, but you don't know English from 400 years ago, right? So 400 years is a long time and language changes and evolves and and we can see that in our own previous 400 years. So for the Jews, it happened the same way. They still were Hebrews, they were Israelites, but they didn't speak Hebrew anymore. They spoke Greek. So they translated the Old Testament scrolls into Greek and that's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is indispensable for us in translating the Bible into English because there's a lot of Old Testament Hebrew words that we don't know what they are except that we can see what they put it what the people who knew Hebrew when it was becoming a dying language they knew Greek and they used that word in Greek well we know that word in Greek and we can translate that to English so that's what this Hebrew word must mean. You with me? How that works? The people who want to Judaize the New Testament and Jesus didn't speak Hebrew. Uh, The Pharisees didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek, which is why the New Testament is written in Greek. It's why when Jesus spoke in Aramaic, which is Hebrew, uh, on the cross, even the Pharisees misunderstood what he said because it wasn't the everyday language of the time. It was Greek. The Septuagint includes all of the books of the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint version of this story, there's a couple other details right here that add some stuff that I want to tell you about. It says that in the Septuagint, that when Esther came before the king, she was trembling with terror and probably trembling because of her fast. You get pretty wobbly three days with no water. She'd be really weak. And she and her servants approach the door and she stands in front of the door and it says she sees the king in all of his glory and terror. Said he was beautiful and fierce. And she passed out. She collapses on the floor in terror for her life. She had a lot on her plate at this moment. She's taking her own physical life into her hands, but she's representing her whole nation. The fate of all the Jews in the world is on her shoulders. Plus, she's been fasting, not just no food, but no water for three days. She's incredibly weak. She comes into front of the door and she sees him and she passes out. And the Septuagint version of this story says the king jumps up off of his throne and runs and picks her up and carries her back up to the pedestal where his throne is and sets her down. And there's there's this picture of her lying on the floor and he's got his hand behind her head and he's leaning over her in tender, gentle compassion and concern for what has happened to my queen. And there's her maids and the king I don't know, patting her face, spritzing her with water. I I don't know. Trying to wake her up. And then she wakes up and he goes and sits back on the throne and she bows in front of him and he lowers the scepter, and there's the So the Bible story isn't wrong, it just leaves out some details. The Septuagint that was written very soon after this happened adds some detail to us. The king says, Ask me whatever you want. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. She says, Come to dinner tonight with Haman. So he and Haman Come to dinner that obviously she didn't cook it. Uh, Her servants cooked it. She's the queen. She doesn't have to slave over the stovetop. The dinner that I've prepared, I've prepared means my servants prepared it. I'm sure everybody here would love to have that, huh? The king, of course, knows at the dinner. He knows, okay, she didn't risk her life to invite me to dinner. So he says, again, queen, ask me whatever it is that you want. I will give it to you up to half the kingdom. And she says, Come again tomorrow night to another dinner, and I'll tell you. Just you and Haman are invited again tomorrow evening. So it says, Haman left with his chest out and his spirits high. He is pumped. The queen, the most powerful and beautiful woman in all the land, likes me. And she got to invite, she invited me to come to dinner with the king. The king goes home and goes to bed. And I'm sure you know, Esther goes and has her servants start preparing the next feast. And Haman goes... And on his way home, who should he meet but Mordecai? In the street, and Mordecai does not bow. He just stares him down as he walks past. And he was in high spirits and really excited and how the queen had honored him above everybody else by inviting him as the only guest at the feast with she and the king, And this totally ruins his mood and it says he goes home and he calls all his friends and his wife and his children and he lines them up and he rants to them about how rich I am and how powerful I am and how many kids I have and this man Mordecai will not bow to me. Have you ever been the object of somebody else's rant? Your spouse had a bad day and they're not coming home, they're not ranting at you but they're just ranting about how bad it was. I think Haman's wife probably had it pretty bad. It's just, it's ridiculous. He gets mad at Mordecai, and this is what it says. He assembled his friends and wife and children and told them how rich he was. This is a sick dude. He's a bad guy. They're talking all night. What can we do about Mordecai? And his wife says, well, how about you don't wait until that edict comes to pass where you get to kill all the Jews? How about we kill Mordecai tomorrow? And she says, build a gallows 50 cubits, a cubit is 18 inches, 75 foot tall gallows. Build it in the center of the square and we'll hang Mordecai on it tomorrow if the king will give us permission. And Haman says, that's a great idea, let's do it. So overnight, Haman's servants go out and they erect a 75 foot high gallows. Well, okay, gallows in English means a platform with a trap door and you put the noose on the guy's neck and pull the arm and down they go. All right, they didn't do that. They did hang dead bodies, on ropes from the city wall uh, for the birds to eat as a way to desecrate the bodies of their enemies when after a battle or criminals were left to hang and be eaten by the, the birds and scavengers as a way to dishonor them. They believed that if you weren't buried, you couldn't go to the afterlife. And so it was just a way to add insult to injury and defeat of your enemies. They did hang people on ropes, but they didn't hang them in a noose and drop them and break their neck really probably what the word means, it means impaling. The Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians all impaled people on stakes. They would either stick it up between the legs and all the way through the body, out the shoulder, which you would live through, and then you would hang on the stake, depending on um, how bad your internal injuries were. You could live three or four days hanging on a spear Um, Or they would stick it in the front and out the back and then stand it up and you would hang um, belly down um, and you'd live a lot longer that way because it was less distance through the body. And probably that is what Haman's wife suggests that we do to Mordecai. When it says gallows, that's an English translation, but it's probably not the idea that we have about hanging somebody on a rope. It means hang them on a pole. 75-foot pole. She says Build a 75-foot pole, we'll sharpen the top of it and slam him on it, and then we'll stand it up, and he can hang there and scream for days. Haman says, that's a great idea, I'll go ask the king permission. In the meantime, back at the palace, the king is having trouble sleeping. And he's bored and restless, so he calls a servant and he says, read something to me, read something about my reign and how great I've been. Just read the history of my rule. So the king picks a scroll at random, begins to read, uh, the story of all the great things that the king has done and how great the world is because he's the king. And he comes to this part of the story where there was an assassination plot a few years ago and a Jewish man named Mordecai exposed that plot and saved your life. And the king sits up and says, hey, I don't remember doing anything for him. Have we ever thanked him? And the servant looks through the scroll. No, have done anything for him. The king says, I need, to, I need to thank him. I need to honor him. At that very moment, Haman walks through the door to ask to kill Mordecai. But before he can get the question out, the king says, Haman, what should I do for a person that I really want to honor and show how much I'm thankful for them? And the Bible says Haman immediately thought, well, who else would that be but me? (laughs) So Haman, in his egotistical, arrogant stupidity, thinks that the king is talking about him, and so he forgets about killing Mordecai, and all of a sudden, oh, well, I'll tell you what I would do, king. I would take one of your royal robes that you wear on the throne, and I would put it on your servant, and I would pick a royal horse that wears the crest and all of the pretty trappings, and I would have the highest prince in the land lead that person through the streets shouting, this is what the king does to somebody that he loves and is thankful for. And the king says, that's a great idea. You go do that for Mordecai. Hollywood could not come up with a better plot twist. It is genius. God is the best author in literature history. I mean, you can't get a better plot twist than that. Haman comes in to ask to kill him. The king has no idea about their personal beef. And it doesn't even know that they know each other. And Haman comes in to ask to execute him. And the king says, Put a royal robe on him, put him on a royal horse, lead it. you personally lead him through the street and shout, this is a great man who the king delights to honor. I can just picture Mordecai, or I'm sorry, Haman throwing the robe at Mordecai, here's your robe, get on the horse. But the king said, don't leave anything undone out of what you have said. So Haman is forced to lead the horse. And head, head positions everything. That's why they had to bow. Now Haman's below Mordecai. Come on now. <laughs> Mordecai's up on the horse and Haman is leading it on a rope. This is what the king does to someone that he honors and is thankful for. And Mordecai, it's just wonderful. It's too funny. <laughs> Haman leads Mordecai through the whole city. They put the horse and the robe away. It says Mordecai goes back home and Haman goes back home. And Haman is in a rage and he's distraught. He's super distressed. And he and his wife... He tells his wife what happened. He can't believe the plot twist. And his wife says, "That this is really bad. We got, we got to do something. This is really bad. And it, the Bible says, at that very moment, two servants from the palace come to get him for dinner. It's the evening of the second night. This all happens in two days. Haman is brought to the palace for his second dinner with Queen Esther and the king. The dinner is going on and... The king knows something really big is on Esther's heart. And he brings it up after they've eaten and drank their wine for a while and they're lounging on the rugs or the couches or whatever they're in. And imagine just the most beautiful setting in a royal courtyard and candles and lanterns and flowers and fabric and, and music and the servants are around and this is the courtyard setting where Esther has prepared her dinner for her husband, the king, and Haman. And, and the king says... Queen Esther, ask whatever it is that's on your mind, whatever it is on your heart, ask me. Even if you want half the kingdom, I will give it to you. He really, truly loves her. And he wants to give her what it is that's on her mind and heart. And She says, I've come to beg for my life. And he throws his wine cup down and stands up and says, What? Who has it even entered into their mind that they would kill my queen? And she says, This wicked Haman... Haman, nor the king, knew that she was a Jew, but it's probably dawning on them now. Haman went white and the king went red. And King Xerxes storms out of the room in a rage to think on what it is he needs to do here. Haman comes over and he begins to beg for his life to Queen Esther. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were a Jew. I would have, of course, I didn't mean to kill you. Please, please beg the king to save my life. And in the process, he faints on top of Esther, Right as the king is coming back into the room, he finds Haman on top of his wife. He's in total distress, begging for his life. He's gone faint, and he collapses on top of the queen. And that's when the king walks back in. Who is this? Would you assault my queen in my absence? And the king didn't even order him executed. The servants just took a sheet and covered Haman's face. They already knew. This is it. As the king was speaking, they covered his face. And the main eunuch who loves Esther says, there's a 75-foot pole right outside. (laughs) And Haman is hung on the gallows he made for Mordecai that very morning. Yay, God. Come on, this is the ultimate plot twist. Hollywood could not invent something better than this where the bad guy is winning and the good people are losing and about to lose at everything and die and everything and all of a sudden we switch it and the bad guy dies and the good guy wins. <laughs> Haman is executed on the gallows he built for Mordecai. That's the way God works, folks. This is the story of Joseph where Joseph is in the dungeon and his life is doomed, it's over. It's over. Everything is lost. And the next day, he's the second in the kingdom, only to Pharaoh. It's Jesus. He died on the cross. Everything is lost. But wait, there's more. In fact, he's not dead. He's the second in the universe. Hello? It says, as they're hanging more, uh, Haman outside, the king gives the house of Haman to Esther. And that doesn't mean his physical house. It means all of his property, his authority, his position, all of his wealth, everything, he gives it to her and she gives it to Mordecai. And Mordecai becomes second in the kingdom. He was doomed to die. He was literally seconds away. But God. But God came in and showed up. So Haman is dead. Mordecai is promoted. The queen is saved. But... There's still this decree that on such and such day, and it's only a few months away now, all the Jews are going to be annihilated by their enemies throughout the whole empire. The Bible doesn't say how Esther and the king got separated, but she has to go again a second time to his throne room and wait at the door for him to lower the scepter. and He does. She falls at his feet and it says in, in tears. She's still weeping bitterly for the fate of her people. And she says, "Please, King, please spare my people. Change the law, cancel the order." And he says, "I can't. What's done is done." In the law of the Medes and Persians, when the king put his signet ring, which is the seal on the seal the wax on make things official and legal, it's like a signature in our modern world. The king put his signet ring in the wax on the on the proclamation. it can never be reversed. Not even the king himself can change what was ordered. So there's this moment of hope and then there's, like any good movie, any good story, there's, oh, well, that isn't all there is. There's more trouble. And it can't be fixed. It can't be changed. And the king thinks on it and he takes his ring off of his finger and he gives it to Esther the queen. And he says, you and Mordecai, issue a new decree in my name. You can't cancel what was done, but you guys come up with a solution and issue a new law. And we come to Esther chapter 8, verse 8. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So nobody can revoke what Haman did in the king's name, but then he takes his ring off and he gives it to his queen and he says, you make a new law, a new edict in my name and no one can cancel it. It will be law. So the idea that Esther and Mordecai come up with is to issue a new law telling the Jews, okay, when that day comes, our enemies have legal permission to attack us and they won't be charged with crimes. But we issue a second edict, you may arm yourselves and defend yourselves, which again would have been illegal and criminal unless the king gives permission. So the king gives permission. Of course, it's the queen doing it, but it's in the king's name. Uh, Esther gives the Jewish people permission to arm themselves and defend themselves, and they did. And we come to Esther chapter 9. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. Now, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Later on, we find it was, I think it's 14,000 people that the Jews executed. No Jews died. They were all rescued and saved. And they, went, they didn't go attack their enemies. They just defended themselves. But it was a total one-sided battle. It's a miracle. 14,000 of their enemies are put to death. Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done and an edict was issued in Susa and they hanged the 10 sons of Haman. So in that first day of battle, they defended themselves successfully and the 10 sons of Haman must have been leading that uprising. They were all captured, taken uh, captive and Esther says, uh, "If it pleases you, let us execute them tomorrow." Haman's all of his sons were executed the next day, impaled on poles, and his name is wiped out by God from history. Haman never should have existed because when we first meet him, he's called Haman the an Agagite. Agag, if you know your Bible, was the king that Saul was supposed to kill and he didn't. And Samuel has to come and execute Agag. Him and all of his sons and all of his people were supposed to die and Saul did not obey God. And here now, 600 years later, his descendants are still trying to kill the Jews. Our disobedience carries long-term consequences to our descendants. Haman never should have existed if Saul had obeyed God 600 years earlier. But God finally got the descendants of Agag erased. And Haman and his sons are now dead and the Jews are victorious. The next chapter talks about Esther and Mordecai issuing the decree to celebrate the festival of Purim, which is coming up this week. On Wednesday at 6 p.m., Jewish people around the world will celebrate by fasting and remembrance uh, the victory that they had in this battle because of Esther and Mordecai. Chapter 10 of Esther is the shortest chapter in the Bible. It's three verses. It says, King Xerxes imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. The islands of the sea is Greece. That's all the Bible says about that. But through the Greek history, we know about um, him building a bridge out of papyrus for his men to cross the Hellespont, which is between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. They spent months weaving grass to make a bridge. And they laid out these pontoons that floated across the water so that his army could march into Greece And on the night before they were going to invade, a storm came up and ripped the bridge apart. So he ordered his men in the next morning with their swords and whips to whip the water and stab the water uh, to tell the Greek god of the ocean that I am more powerful than you and I will defeat you. They built a second bridge. Months later, they get a second pontoon floating bridge built out of grass again, and no storm happened and they came across and then there's the battle of the 300, which... Uh, if you know, you're about Leonidas and the 300 and their stand at Thermopylae. And, and, and that's, that's Esther's husband. So this week they're celebrating Purim, the victory of the Jews over their enemies, because of Esther's courage to go to the throne room, to take her life into her own hands and to save her people. In this story, these characters rep- represent someone for us. Xerxes represents God. He's the king of kings. That was Xerxes' title. God is Jesus, is the king of kings. Vashti is the first queen. That's Old Testament Israel. Where God said, I want to display your beauty, come and dance. And she said, no, I won't. And so she was removed as queen, and Esther is brought in, and Esther is the church. Esther is us. Hello? Yeah. Esther is the church, the bride of Christ, Haman, of course, represents the devil, who is the second in command in the world. No one ranks higher than him but God. But he's all selfishness and evil, and he wants to destroy the Jews and Esther. Hello? His his whole goal is to promote himself and to kill Jews and Christians. Haman is the devil. There's an argument to be made for Mordecai, a model of the Holy Spirit, because he's giving advice and counsel to Esther but actually, I think that the eunuch is the Holy Spirit in this story because it's, the Holy Spirit is, is a eunuch who prepares the bride for the king, but he never touches her for himself. He, he is the friend of the bridegroom who prepares the bride for the king. I think Mordecai actually is faithful Israel, godly Israelites throughout all of history who are living and walking with the church and that together um, we are God's people and Satan's enemies. Esther is the church. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one, flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Christ and the church are a man and a woman who is joined together and become one. Revelation calls the church the bride of Christ two or three times. It's called the wife of the lamb once Paul two or maybe three times refers to this idea that the church is the bride of Christ. No individual person in here is the bride of Christ. The church, capital C, universal, all the world, throughout all of history, every believer, together we are the bride of Christ. We're the church. There's nothing funky weird about you being married to Jesus. All right, It's it's us together. It's a relationship of love and covenant that Paul says the only earthly sample or model that we could make out of it is marriage. It's exclusive covenant relationship. So I'm talking to you about spiritual authority for the last two months. And Esther shows us how Jesus treats his bride. I want to talk to you this morning about a wife's authority. When a wife takes her husband's name, It's a sign of ownership and oneness and identity and sameness. She says, my old identity is gone and now I'm now one with you and we have the same name. And that's what happens when each individual one of us, when we come into Jesus, we take his name and we become one in baptism. It doesn't mean that our old life was all worthless, but I'm starting over in a new covenant and I'm now a new person with a new name and a new identity, and I belong to you, Jesus. Yes. In the same way that a wife uh, comes into her under her husband's authority and takes her name, and, and we are one. And God says, don't take my name in vain. That doesn't mean don't swear. I'm not giving you permission to swear. I'm just saying when God says, don't take my name in vain, it means don't say that you belong to me, and then you don't live like it. Don't say your mind and then step out on me with other gods. Hello? Sarah speaks for me if I'm not around with the kids. What she says is law. Come on, moms. Amen? Yeah. I told you two months ago that to have authority, you have to be under authority, and every mom proves it when she says, you just wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> right? I have authority because dad's going to come and back me up (laughs) if you don't listen. And dads, you better be backing up what your wife tells the kids. Sarah knows what I would want in my absence with the kids or or even in church things, what she says because she knows me better than anybody else. And every wife represents her husband in that way. In world history, wives were not granted right to own property or inherit property or have any control over finances, but Christianity has given in cultures where Christianity is the history, women have so many more rights and privileges and honor than they do Is still today in the Muslim world or the Chinese world or uh, other, pl- other cultures that don't value Christianity. And so a wife can sign checks and own property, and sh- if I died, Sarah would inherit everything that's mine, and what's mine is hers, and we are equals before the law. Women who are screaming for more don't understand what they already have compared to 98% of all women in history. Women today live in a very, very good world. A wife can instruct the kids, run the household, discipline the kids, and, and a wife has relational authority. I'm talking to you about spiritual authority. I'm talking to you about Jesus and his church. A wife has relational authority to say things that nobody else is allowed to say. And it goes both ways, of course, but those of you who are married, you know, You put up with things from your spouse that you would never put up with from anybody else. You would cut off relationship. But because you're in a covenant, you must stay together and work it out. Your spouse said things, good and bad, that nobody else is allowed to say. And your spouse knows things that nobody else knows. Good and bad. I'm talking about, I'm using wife because that's, that's the church, and I'm talking about the authority that a wife has. She has authority to say things to her husband that he would not listen to it from anybody else, good or bad. Other people might think it needs to be said, but she's the one to say it, right? Or maybe she shouldn't say it, but she still, in the context of the covenant, probably says some things she shouldn't say. But he can't break off relationship. I'm talking about Jesus and the church. Those of you who are afraid that Jesus doesn't actually love you and you won't find out till judgment day, or maybe I'm not saved, or maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin, I'm telling you Jesus is in covenant with you and he cannot break it unless you step out on him. The only way Jesus and you can break your relationship is if you tell him, I'm done and I'm out of here. As long as you keep coming back, he is required to stay in covenant with you with his bride. Yeah? A wife has access of love to the privacy of a man's heart that nobody else knows. I would guess every married man in this room would say, my wife is my best friend. She's the only one that really knows me. All the good stuff and the bad stuff. She's seen it all. She knows it all. And whether your marriage is good or bad or strong or weak, you would, have, you would say, my wife knows me better than anybody. And it's the same with Christ and the church. People think they know who Jesus is, but only those who really love him in covenant love will get to know the depths of his heart and the private thoughts and who he really is. But there's more higher authority even than just a wife because in this story, Esther is married to a king. If you're married to a king, you're not just a wife, you're the queen. And Esther's story specifically tells us how Jesus treats his queen, that she is a co-regent with him. That is absolutely unheard of. In today's society, so much is taken for granted about women's rights that it's not shocking to read the story of Esther. But anybody in world history, when the king takes his ring off and gives it to Esther and says, you make the law, that is jaw-dropping. That is unheard of. That is impossible. You don't give authority to a woman. Even if she's queen. She's just a trophy to sit here and be pretty and quiet. And the king takes his authority off of his finger and gives it to his queen. And says, you rule in my name. I'm talking about spiritual authority. With Jesus and his bride. That's mind-blowing, shocking, world-changing paradigm that a queen would have authority. There have been queens in history that had authority, not in the ancient world much. There was one pharaoh, a woman pharaoh who put on a fake beard and a crown and ruled as a man, but she was usurping power from her son and grandson, but But there weren't queens in the ancient world that just ruled on their own to have authority because even if you're a queen, you don't have authority. But Esther did because her king loved her. She wasn't just a trophy wife. She was, but she wasn't just that. He actually loved her and trusted her to use his name to rule in his authority. Whatever you ask, up to half the kingdom, you can have it. You have all of my authority and the resources of my kingdom at your disposal, and you have my full backing to whatever you do. That's Jesus and the church. We're called the bride of Christ. We're called the lamb's wife. If he's the king of heaven and earth, the church is the queen of heaven and earth. We are the object of his attention and affection, the one thing that attracts him in the whole universe. We're not only saved and redeemed and rescued from our old life. We are loved and attended with great affection and joy and intense love. When we appear before Jesus, we're going to walk in the door of the throne room and faint. I guarantee you. We're not walking in to meet our pal Jesus. We're not walking in to meet a mild, suffering servant. We're going to meet the God of the universe. And like John, who was very familiar and friendly with Jesus, when he meets him in heaven, he falls down and thinks he's going to die. And once wasn't enough, he did it again. Second time in Revelation. Jesus is so glorious and powerful and fierce and terrifying. We who know him and love him and know that he loves us, we're going to faint. But he is going to jump up off the throne and rush over and pick us up and show great, tender compassion and love and welcome us to his throne. Welcome us to his throne. We have to go in the fear of the Lord. We're not going with some slapstick, uh, relaxed, happy, easygoing attitude to meet the God of the universe. We're not worshiping as... Uh, well, thanks God, that was nice of you to die for me and give me a good life, Let's see in heaven. No, we are his servants. We are his children, but we are also his bride. And there is great tenderness and compassion and gentleness, even though he is a great and fearsome king. There is great tenderness. And he wants to know what we need and what we want. He desires to serve us like any good husband wants to serve his wife. Jesus wants to serve his church, like any good husband. That's amazing. We're in a covenant relationship with the Lord, and the only earthly model for that is marriage. It's unescapable, it's unbreakable, it's undivorceable. We have relational access to the privacy of his heart. We, meaning the church universal, we are the one that knows him the private thoughts of his heart and what he, what he wants. When your husband is the king of heaven and earth, then the bride is the queen of heaven and earth, and that's the church. The church is Jesus' trophy wife. He does think that the church is the most beautiful thing there is, the thing that's worth dying for, the thing that's worth going to hell for, right. is this group of people. He chose us because we are the most beautiful, the most pleasing to Him, because of humility, because of serving and saving and loving and healing, even people suffering and dying for truth and love and salvation, that equals beauty in heaven. Jesus says, I have to have that girl. She's mine. Those people are the one I want, the ones who would give their life for truth and love. And he wants to display the beauty of his queen to the world. Vashti said no, but Esther said yes. There's a whole lot of people that said no, but there are some people who said yes. And he wants to give her what she desires. He's not only keeping her as some trophy display, but she gets elevated to co-ruler, which never happens, but it happened. He gives us his authority, and he says, you go and make it happen. Make a decree in my name, and nobody can cancel it. Ask whatever you desire, and I will give it to you. This is why I've spent two months on spiritual authority. It is so important that you understand who you are in Christ and how to pray. Go clear back to the beginning. When you end a prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen, that is not a hashtag at the end of the prayer. King tells Esther, You make a decree in my name, and no one may stop it. God says, I can't undo what's been done. It's done. But you can change it from here on out. Pray and love and serve and believe and act in my name. I give you my authority. I give you all my resources. You have the entire kingdom at your disposal. In my name, you change it from here on out. Make a new law in your own heart. Make a new law in your family. Make a new law in your nation. Make a new law in your church. You do it. I can't change what's been done, but you can change it from today on. And you have all of Jesus' backing to pray for miracles and healing and salvation, to serve and love and forgive. Think of everything I've talked to you about the last two months. Our authority to forgive, our, the authority of compassion, the authority of being under somebody else's authority and what, what that does and how to pray and how to serve and how to be an ambassador. We are all those things, but ultimately we are the bride of Christ, the king of heaven and earth. And we are not just his trophy wife that he displays and says, sit there and look pretty and be quiet and let me run the show. He says, no, here's my authority, here's all my resources of heaven. You rule the world in my name. Yes. Yes. Change your heart, change your family. Change somebody else's life. Be my agents of salvation. In all that that means, you are my queen. You have the authority of a wife. You have the authority of queen. Speak for me. Be me. In my name, you rule the kingdom. Come on. That ought to make you really happy. When you pray, when you love, when you forgive, all of the authority of heaven is backing that. When you pray in Jesus' name, amen, you have said something. Yes. Live like and act like it's going to happen. Because yes. I'm a member of the Queen of Heaven. Right I don't know all of you. I, I know most of you. I know you're in the church. You're in Christ and you're in the church. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, I would love to introduce you to him. And you can come into him and into his bride and be a part of the queen of heaven, and you will be loved and backed up and set free, and your life will be beautified like you've never experienced before. Jesus loves his bride. He loves his people. He has something for you. He has given you authority and responsibility to forgive and love and save and heal and preach.